Well, the township of Langley, the acting fire chief in the township, has served written notice to the Langley fire chief saying that the township is going to withdraw from the Joint Langley Emergency Program. And this is a program that has served both of those communities for more than two decades. So what is happening here? Nathan Pashal, who is the mayor of the city of Langley, is joining us on the line now to talk more about this. Nathan, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, great chatting with you this afternoon. What, at first, uh, looking at this, it looks as though something that seemed to be working well is now going to be uh, split apart. What is your knowledge of what's happening here? Yeah, so um, my understanding is, and from my experience, we've had a very good working relationship with the Township of Langley over the years. Uh, one of the ways that we've collaborated together in the past was with joint emergency management. We're really seeing this push for um, integration of emergency management services so we can respond to emergencies and disasters when they occur more efficiently. So I think, you know, we were almost sort of leading that for a little bit um, in Langley. Right. So what happened, as far as your knowledge, to the township but saying, no, we don't want to be part of this anymore. We want to, we're going to withdraw from this partnership. Yeah. I mean, it's one where uh, I really didn't receive uh, notice on. Uh, I know we're in a new phase of, I think, of a relationship with the Township of Langley. Uh, We also received uh, notification from them a bit earlier that they're also looking at uh, setting up their own RCMP detachment. We currently share a detachment with the RCMP as well. Uh, That's going to be a long process um, to deintegrate that department. As a municipality, obviously, uh, they have the full right to do that. So I think we're just in this phase where, um, you know, where there was integration, we're seeing a disintegration happening right now between the two communities. Does this seem efficient, though, given the population? If you add the populations of both the city of Langley and the township of Langley, where does it sit roughly? Yeah, so um, we're, I don't want to get the township numbers wrong. So they're over 100, I want to say, 20, 30,000 people. Uh, we're sitting around 31,000 people right now. Uh, interesting for us is we're sort of the like donut hole uh, in the greater Langley community. So I like to say all roads go through Langley City. So we're really that urban core in the center. So it makes a lot of sense that we would integrate on things where it makes sense, just like we integrate with Metro Vancouver when it comes to water and sewer delivery or TransLink when it comes to the provisioning of transit service that serves you know, all residents in Metro Vancouver. Right. And if you look at it both geographically and population, as as you just pointed out, uh, we're looking at uh, more than 120 or 130,000 in the township, but only about 31,000 in the city. Doesn't it make a lot of sense to have those things, uh, whether it's RCMP or fire, any emergency responders to have them all working uh, for both areas? Oh, it makes a ton of sense uh, to me. So the other thing I think that we even look at uh, when it comes to integration is even with, you know, the delivery of the radio communication networks and dispatch. So, for example, with fire service, we have our own uh, fire department, but we actually share the dispatch service with Surrey. Uh, So it makes a lot of sense that, you know, Surrey and us partner together on the fire dispatch service. So really within our region, while we are independent municipalities, well, we're very proud of that. And where I think it's really important so we can respond to the needs of local residents. When it really comes to some of these services, to me, it makes a lot of sense to work together.
So what will happen to Langley City then if this goes ahead, if the township breaks away and you're left to, to, to do things that you had done in partnership with the township to do them on your own? Yeah, so um, finance-wise, Langley City is in good shape. Uh, Staffing-wise, um, we'll have the people to be able to take on that responsibility. So there will be uh, no concern for Langley City residents when there is an emergency. We'll be able to meet our obligations under provincial legislation and make sure that when something happens, everybody in our community is looked after. Um, where I think there is just going to be some inefficiencies is when we have things that cross jurisdictions, and we see that um, you know, all the time, especially uh, the good example for me is the Willowbrook Shopping Center in Langley. So Willowbrook Shopping Mall, two thirds of the shopping mall is in the township of Langley. One third of the shopping mall is in the city of Langley. So it will just create some things that we're going to have to iron out. And I think at the end of the day, it might cost Langley city taxpayers. And I would believe township taxpayers a bit more just because there's, you know, some collaboration, which will be a little bit tougher to do. But at the end of the day, Langley City will be fine. Right. But when you say it'll cost taxpayers more, don't you think that taxpayers will hear this and think, well, this is ridiculous. It's something that works. We're, we're a tiny city. Why wouldn't we stay a, a part of this? Or why, wouldn't, why should we now have to pay more for these emergency services? Yeah. I mean, to be clear, we're uh, willing to be partners. And this is not a decision the city's made. Right. And, and I think you touched on this, but, but again, what is the reason that, that you were given from the township as to why they were ending this partnership uh, other than is it they just want to go out on their own? Uh, I can't speculate on the township's decision. Uh, just from what we received is they are uninterested in continuing the partnership. Uh, and I don't have any further details that they provided us on this. Uh, so with the Willowbrook Mall as the example, what, ha- what would happen then in a scenario when this is not a joint Langley emergency program, if a 911 call then were to come in from Willowbrook Mall, would the dispatcher have to ask the person, well, where exactly in the mall are you to figure out if they were in the township or the city? Well, I want to make sure that we're, we're talking about two different things here. So emergency management is more when there's a natural disaster or a fire or uh, some other sort of um, major event that happens in the community beyond like the day-to-day 911 call. Okay. Uh, when you're talking about uh, the other conversation, which is about the disintegration of the Langley RCMP, if a call comes into 911, they would have to, I guess, ask which part of the mall you're in. Which doesn't that seem bizarre that, uh, and again, if it's a fire or something that would, that would fall under that, I mean, it's an emergency and that's why the call's being made. It, it seems that the area where it is in the mall would, would seem, well, who cares? Just get to the mall. Yes. And we have, um, again, throughout most municipalities, we have mutual aid agreements with fire service. And if something, you know, significant happens, people will respond to the call, um, But, uh, you know, if you have integrated services, that means that you can be making more holistic decisions when it comes to these things. So you don't have to, you know, step one, get the two parties together, and then, you know, step two, then you can respond to it. When it's integrated, it's sort of like one point of contact. But I think there's value to that. Is this, as far as you know, then a done deal? Or are there there any opportunities to talk with the township and try and figure out if there is a way to keep the, the joint program together? Yeah, I mean, there's there's always uh, opportunities. I know um, my my email, phone, and text is always available for the township to have a conversation. Have there been conversations recently? 
uh, about this. I was mm-hmm. informed uh, that this was uh, a done deal. So, and and is that it? There's no other uh, kind of avenue of appeal or anything else you can do. Well, we are local government, and it is a decision I respect because the township is its own municipality, and uh, that is a decision they can make, and I respect that decision because they are an autonomous government just like us. All right. Nathan Pahal, Mayor of the City of Langley, thanks so much for joining us and talking more about this today. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Have a great day. The federal government has tabled a bill. It will delay by a year an expansion of medically assisted dying to people with mental health disorders as their only or main underlying condition. The bill seeks to delay the expansion until March 17th of 2024. And we heard earlier from Minister Lametti. It will also allow the completion of in-depth studies of the risks and complexities associated with providing MAID to individuals whose sole underlying condition is mental illness. The safety of Canadians must come first. That's why we're taking the additional time necessary to get this right. Protecting the safety and security of vulnerable people and supporting individual autonomy and freedom of choice are central to Canada's MAID regime. Justice Minister David Lametti speaking earlier today. We are joined now by Helen Long, the CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jill. I'm curious your thoughts on this and hearing the minister there talk about this delay being needed to make sure that we get it right. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, initially, I, I think important to say that we're disappointed. I think for that very small, and it will be a very small group of Canadians who are seeking access under this criteria, um, I think it's very difficult for them to hear that there's been yet another delay. There's been two years of work, um, work prior to that, but a, a very focused two years of work, and to hear that there is another year, I think, is disappointing. Um, at the same time, you know, we, we would agree that, of course, we want to be prudent and careful and if the government feels that they need um, time to finalize some of the practice standards and education, I think that's important. I would note that, you know, some provinces have indicated they are ready. Some clinicians have indicated that they're ready. Clinicians have already been assessing on the basis of a mental disorder in combination with a physical um, ailment. So this is not totally new territory. Um, but, you know, as it stands, it looks like that, that deadline has been tabled and we will see, uh, you know, we'll see what happens as it works its way through the house. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about scenarios where this, where MAID would be used in, in this case? Because I think that's where there's, there seems to be a bit of a disconnect in that, that when we look at MAID, when we're talking about a terminal physical illness, there seems to be a much bigger acceptance in, uh, compared to when we're talking about MAID and we're talking about the, for somebody with, with a mental condition as that underlying condition. Absolutely. Uh, 65% of made cases are cancer cases. So, you know, I think everyone knows someone that has perhaps been in that situation or could be in that situation, and it's easy to relate to. Mental disorders as a sole underlying condition, so it's not even a major part or majority, it's the sole condition. Um, That's a much more, a, a little bit of an unknown for people. So we're talking about people, generally speaking, we're talking about a very small number of people They've likely suffered for years, maybe decades. They've tried many, many treatments, and not just medication, but multiple other treatments, uh, including, for example, shock therapy, and have been unable to relieve their suffering, unable to uh, find real quality of life. 
We're not talking about people who are in crisis, people who are expressing suicidality, people who have just been diagnosed with depression and, and who might say, oh, I think I'd like to apply. The reality is having a mental disorder will not make you eligible. You can apply, but you still have to go through a, a very stringent eligibility criteria that includes, at a minimum, two independent assessors, but also, depending on your condition, people with expertise in those conditions. So in some cases, a psychiatrist, for example. Um, so it's a, a very small group, and it's also that, you know, really impacted group. It's not, it's not people who are just having a momentary crisis or who have uh, been very recently diagnosed. Do you think it's because we've had stories in the news or, or stories have been highlighted in the past year where uh, there were cases where people said they, they couldn't get housing for, and they did have specific medical needs, but uh, couldn't get housing, couldn't find a way to have a comfortable life and were contemplating MAID or, or saying that MAID seemed to be the only answer. And stories that pointed to veterans saying that they had been offered MAID when it wasn't even something they were asking for. Do, do stories like that cause uh, more perhaps confusion or cause people to want to back away from it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think maybe let's address those two issues separately because they're very distinct. In the case of individuals uh, indicating that they didn't have appropriate housing or support and they were going to have to have made, uh, I think it's important to remember that you cannot be found eligible on that criteria. Like you cannot say, I don't have enough money, so I'm going to die. You have to meet the eligibility criteria. And while that, those other shortfalls may impact your suffering, um, you know, I think it's incumbent on us as a society, it's incumbent on the provincial and federal government to make sure that people have what they need to live first. Um, but that is not a criteria for getting made. No one is, is found eligible based on a lack of income or a lack of housing. In the case of the veterans, um, that was a very specific situation in which one caseworker uh, in violation of Veteran Affairs uh, policy was actually suggesting or raising made uh, with those individuals. And, you know, my understanding from the media stories is that a full investigation was done. That individual no longer works there. So that's a scenario that, you know, while very disturbing and should not happen, that's a matter of one person doing the wrong thing. That's not about a system looking for, for veterans to sign up for made. Veterans should be like everyone else. If they feel they're eligible and they want to apply of their own choice and their own free will, they should be allowed to do so. But no one should be suggesting um, that a veteran should be having made. Right. And are there scenarios or are there other countries where they have had made probably in place longer than Canada, where they have brought in the model that includes mental health or mental disorders as the underlying condition, where they, they have brought in the criteria and that works? Yeah, absolutely. In the Netherlands, for example, uh, assisted dying for those with a mental disorder has been legal for 20 years now. In that time, um, rough numbers, about 1% of the 4% of deaths that are made related are attributed to people with a mental disorder as their sole underlying condition. So it's a, you know, a tiny number. As, and so with the delay in Canada then, uh, to and again, as the Justice Minister said, this delay was necessary uh, to get it right and uh, necessary to do this before the expansion. Uh, do you think people will suffer because of this or there will be people who were, uh, were, were not looking forward to this, but people who were counting on this, that this was going yeah. to be the legislation? Absolutely. And, you know, when you say looking forward to, I think that's not an incorrect statement. We hear from people every day who, 
you know, may or may not be eligible. They may or may not be approved, but they think they want to apply. And for them, they need an answer, even if the answer is no. And I think there are, you know, again, small numbers, but there are some people that will be very discouraged and, um, you know, disappointed with this news and, and will be struggling because of it. In the other parts of this, and when you're talking about the eligibility and and what people need as far as assessments to be approved for this, uh, do you think Canada is getting it right in in that part of this legislation? Yeah, I honestly do. I mean, it's a it's a robust criteria. We have the clinicians who provide made in Canada are a a very thoughtful, careful group. I mean, they run the risk of of not only you know losing their medical license, but also criminal charges. So, um, you know, we work with them every day, and they are they're caring, compassionate people who just truly want to help people who have made the choice, which is you know your choice. Uh, they've made the choice to have an assisted death. They want to make sure that they're they're qualifying people appropriately, and and that people that meet the criteria are able to to access it at end of life. And do you think it's something as well, when you talk about the Netherlands and the fact that that particular part of MAID has been in legislation, it's been in the Netherlands for 20 years, is it because it's still relatively new in Canada compared to some other countries that it will take longer for people to be more comfortable with this? Yeah, I think for sure, with anything, right? Change is hard. So uh, I do think people will need time to get comfortable with it. I think you know, certainly there have been a lot of stories um, conflating other issues with MAID and, and where, you know, unfortunately, because of patient confidentiality, often you don't hear the entire story. Um, so I think that has caused some unease. Uh, I think just COVID, the, the period of time that we're kind of living in and that this legislation has gone through has definitely been an impact for people. So, yeah, I think time will help and seeing that cases go forward and Um, that they're being managed appropriately, that will also help. All right. Helen Long, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you being with us today. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Staff with the Fraser Health Authority as well as medical teams there are seeing blue, but fear not, it is a good thing and it all has to do with a new disinfection system. Could this be disinfection of the future? Well, Jason Kang is joining us now, Chief Innovation Officer and co-founder of a company called Kinos. And Jason, thank you so much for taking the time with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I understand you're also a biomedical engineer, and with two other co-founders, you've invented this highlight color technology. So what is this? Yeah, so it's kind of a fun origin story. Uh, When Catherine, Kevin, and myself were undergrads at Columbia, um, there was this hackathon around the West Africa Ebola outbreak. And one of the things that the school did is they brought in doctors from the field to talk about problems that they were facing. And by far the largest problem was when they were disinfecting surfaces, because disinfectants are transparent, they couldn't see where it was being applied. And as a result, they were missing spots and doctors were being infected at 30 times the rate of the average person. So that's what really sparked the aha moment around let's create colorized disinfection. So our highlight technology is a pretty simple concept. You basically take whatever disinfectant you're using today you add our patented highlight color additive to it. And when you apply the highlight enhanced disinfectant to a surface, it will actually leave behind a visible blue film. So you can see in real time exactly where you've covered. 
And then the magic is that after a couple of minutes, the color will actually disappear from blue to colorless to help approximate when disinfection has been done correctly. So the idea is that you give this to anyone and just say, make sure everything's covered in color. Once the color disappears, you've done a good job. Hmm. And that must have been amazing the moment you realized that you, you had the formula that worked, though, so it was uh, the color blue and then disappeared. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of hard work. You know, in the early days, when it was just the three co-founders, um, you know, thousands and thousands of hours just uh, in the lab tinkering and playing around with different formulations. Uh, you know, the team has grown since then, and we've brought in uh, some sophisticated chemistry and chemical engineers uh, to... Uh, really up-level technology, but, um, you know, fundamentally, you know, we're, you know, we're solving a problem that people often don't really think about. Um, you know, a lot of time when people think about disinfection, it's about, you know, what product am I using, but they don't think about the technique. You know, am I really covering every part of the surface? Am I using enough pressure and friction to really remove the biofilm or dirt or food, whatever's there on the surface? And am I leaving it on the surface for a long enough time to actually allow the disinfectant to kill everything before you take it off or, you know, wipe down the surface. So, um, you know, today in hospitals, you know, about 50% of high-touch surfaces don't get disinfected properly on a daily basis. Um, And here in the U.S. where we're headquartered, you know, one out of every 31 patients that goes to the hospital gets an infection from the hospital itself. And one thing that we can do to help mitigate that risk is really ensuring that the environment of care is truly clean. Yeah, it's what an uh, amazing idea. Although I, I was uh, listening to you, I, I'm I would be re- reluctant to try it. I think because I think I would find out I'm really bad at cleaning and I miss a lot <laughs> of spots. But you're right, and that's one of the biggest scares I think for people is going to a hospital is you do have that fear of infection and coming into contact with the with the, with things that can can cause infection. So uh, what a great way to to stop that from happening. Uh, I mentioned Fraser Health and that medical staff there and staff there are using the product and that is the the goal then to get it into more hospitals and more healthcare settings? Yeah, certainly. So Fraser has been uh, an amazing partner to us, extremely innovation minded, really forward thinking. And you can really tell just in terms of working with their staff that they're truly committed to doing right by the patients. Um, so, you know, any sort of new technology roll, roll out at a hospital requires behavior change, training, it requires buy-in from both the top and the bottom. And, um, you know, it, it, it is, uh, you know, any initiative requires that investment of time, resources, and effort. Um, every step of the way, um, they've really made it a priority. And so our technology is currently being used in 11 of their hospitals. Um, and the goal being that by using the technology, they can really help ensure that, um, surfaces are being disinfected uh, optimally, reducing the risk of transmission of pathogens via these surfaces, which can also contaminate hands and instruments. Um, And moreover, I think one of the um, interesting sort of beneficial side effects of the technology is that it's such a visual tool that everyone can see it. Um, And, you know, you can help not only uh, empower the people who use the product to uh, do a uh, do the best job possible, but you can also provide peace of mind to patients and families 
through disinfection that you can actually see. We only have about a minute left, but I'm curious as well, was it difficult to find that balance so it didn't stain and it still disappeared and that it didn't change the efficacy of the cleaner? Yeah, that, I'll, I mean, it, it, it's a very simple idea, color, color changing, but there's a ton of really technical chemistry work that went behind it to your point of material compatibility, making sure it's safe and non-toxic, not changing the properties of the antimicrobial efficacy of the original disinfectant. Um, so a lot of uh, hard work by our, our Rockstar team to, to make all that happen. But, you know, we're really excited to be, you know, partnering with hospitals like Fraser to make patient safety a priority. All right. Well, it's a very, very interesting and cool technology. Jason, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, joining us now is Sylvain Charlebois, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. I know it's not the first time we've talked about supply management, but uh, people are watching this video. Uh, he's probably gone far more viral than he thought he would, but he, he mentions in there too, he says a couple of times, look, we're not supposed to talk about this. We're not supposed to put this out there, but I'm frustrated. I'm sick and tired of this. Milk costs $7 a jug. Why are we pouring it out? What are your thoughts on this? Well, he's right. I mean, it's quite frustrating. And you can actually feel the emotion huh, in his voice. I mean, it's his work down the drain. And uh, I've been talking about this for 20 years. Uh, but we've, what, what we've never seen is a video of a farmer actually dumping milk because all of it is is inside, right? You can't, like in the United States, you can actually film milk lagoons and you can actually visualize the problem. But in Canada, dairy farmers have been very careful uh, not to disclose too much of, of the dumping that's going on. I mean, we actually estimate that dairy farmers will dump anywhere between 100 million to 300 million liters of milk a year across the country. So this is not a new problem, but this is the first time that a dairy farmer decided to go on social media and show the problem. So I think it's shocking a lot of people. So not a new problem and not something that, like you say, it's not something that, that is new. Dairy farmers obviously have known about this and see it all every year when they do this or whenever they're pouring it out. But do you think yeah. it's because of the high food prices and what we're seeing at grocery stores now and dairy farmers are, and, and people, consumers as well, have had enough? Uh, I, I think it's part of it for sure. I mean, uh, right now, I mean, on February 1st, yesterday, we heard that dairy farmers are getting more for milk, 2.2%. That's the third increase in a year. So when you add all three together, it's almost 14%. They're getting 14% more money for the work. And so this guy is dumping 30,000 liters down the drain and milk prices at the grocery store are going up. Dairy product prices are going up as well. So people do wonder why are we dumping milk? That dumping is basically costing us more money because it's, it's, creating, it's creating less, uh, or it's, it's affecting supplies essentially. And uh, that's what I've argued for 20 years. In the United States, there's dumping going on too, but they don't have supply management. In Canada, we have the luxury 
of having supply management, we can actually solve the problem very quickly. And if we look at supply management as a system to itself, so brought in uh, to kind of curb overproduction to make it so that farmers weren't getting very low prices, but I mean, that was decades ago. Has it kind of outrun its its need or, or, or is it still needed, do you think? It needs to be improved, you know. So if you look at surpluses, uh, I, I think that there's a quick fix. Make it illegal. Milk in Canada is a public good compared to the United States. Dairy farmers, like Jerry, okay, owns government-sanctioned quotas, okay? Only him can produce milk. You and I can't. We're not allowed to. He can. So it's a privilege. And the CDC, the Canadian Dairy Commission, is charged with the task of setting the appropriate price for milk so a guy like Jerry can make a good living, okay? You just can look in the video, the equipment that he has. He has millions and millions of dollars of equipment. I mean, these people are well off, but he has a duty to serve the public, in my view. So the surpluses, we need to fix that, and we can make it illegal and create a strategic reserve for excess milk. We have a strategic reserve already for butter. All we need to do is to create a different circuit to dehydrate the milk so we can actually conserve it for up to two years and ship it to other markets where that milk is needed. So why do you think there appears to be, or why is there such a reluctance to go in and look at the supply management system and to improve it, to change it? Because of votes, it's political, uh, and and most dairy farmers are located in Ontario and Quebec, and no politicians uh, in their right minds, except for Maxime Bernier, uh, and you know people have an opinion of him, uh, won't touch supply management. They rely on farmers to dictate policy. I mean, dairy farmers convince. Uh, Ottawa, that they are losing money due to uh, trade deals we've signed with the United States, Europe, and Asia. Farmers aren't you losing money at all. They just recalibrate quotas. So we have farmers exiting the industry every single year, so they don't have to give money. We're giving billions of dollars to dairy farmers. So politicians just don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear because it it's tough. And dumping milk is easy. And farmers have zero incentive to change anything. Even though in that video of Jerry Hugan, who, when he talks about it, he even says he's got four kids. He says it's not under the current system and the way things are. It's not the lucrative career that it once was. And he's worried about the future. Oh, a dairy, it's very lucrative to be a dairy farmer. His farm is probably worth seven to eight million dollars. So you you just saw a man on video who's a millionaire. So let's 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 keep keep it honest here. These people are well off, but the problem is that they're they're producing food, and the system is basically enticing them to waste a lot of it. And I think it is our duty to rescue that food so we can actually, you know, trade and sell the food to other nations. China invested, built a $250 million plant in Kingston, Ontario, to process our own milk and ship it to China. Why do we need the Chinese to do that? We can do that ourselves.
Right. And so does that, is that outside of supply management or how does, I, I do remember reading about that as well. No, no, no. It's the DFO, the Dairy Farmers of Ontario, the same people who told Jerry to dump his milk. They're the one that sanctioned the plant in Kingston and the board itself is selling the milk to the plant in China so they can actually ship all the powder to China. It's mind-boggling that Canadians haven't figured that one out. And why is it, do you think, that some products are uh, fall under this? When we're talking about milk, uh, talking uh, about dairy products uh, and such, why, why are there some foods that are under the supply management, the quotas, where other foods aren't? This is why I'm, I'm supportive of the quota system, because, you see, when you produce milk, uh, you have cows. Cows produce milk every day. You need a market for your product. Same for eggs, same for chicken. The production cycle for these commodities is incredibly intensive. So I actually do support marketing boards. I think it's important to remain to keep the core system. But it needs to be improved. and It needs to become more efficient. And right now, you got a lot of people going to the grocery store paying an arm and a leg for milk and dairy products. And they're seeing this video, and they can't figure out why this is happening. And do you think there would be a way then with it, with what dairy farmers are making and how they benefit from this system, if the system, and maybe not throwing it away completely, but like you say, changing it so we're not putting millions of liters of milk down the drain every year, is there a way to do that and still have it be a profitable system, one that dairy farmers would support? Last year, we produced a document called Supply Management 2.0. And in that document, there's a roadmap to make to actually avoid these things from happening. It's very simple, very simple. One, make milk dumping illegal. Right now, most boards are allowed not to disclose any of the dumping. So that's why the Canes don't know about this unless you have some Jerry posting a video on social media. And two, you create a second class of quota to allow farmers to sell their surpluses to a strategic reserve run and organized by the Cane Dairy Commission, which is a crown corporation owned by all Canadians. So you can actually develop a plan to export to different markets and actually generate revenue for the industry. Do you think there will be, like you say, it comes down to politics, it comes down to votes and, and anybody having the political will to do this. Do you think with current food prices, uh, with this video, will that conversation finally at least start to, to be had and maybe leading to some change? Well, I mean, I actually uh, shared the video uh, on Twitter copying Minister Bebo, the Minister of Agriculture. Have, you, have we heard from her yet? Are we going to hear from her? My guess is no. All right. Well, we will keep trying and hopefully uh, find out, uh, get a reaction from the minister. Sylvain, as always, thank you so much. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Don't uh, hold your breath on that one. But thank you, uh, yeah. as always. Thanks for joining us. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Well, we are talking now about a judgment. It was recently released by the B.C. Supreme Court uh, just yesterday. Actually, it was released and it has to do with a case on the Sunshine Coast and a man who had been charged with one count of aggravated assault, a charge that he did not dispute. He was accused of stabbing his then wife in the back with a kitchen knife. And that was the allegation. But he has been found not guilty. And it's that finding that might get you questioning how the judge came to that conclusion. We're going to talk about this more with Sarah Lehman, a lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, an interesting judgment to read through and look at how things kind of unfolded and how this all built up to what happened that night in April of 2017. What are your thoughts on this case and the ruling in this case? Well, I have to say that I was not a part of this case, so my knowledge of it is only what I have also been able to access um, through the public. Now, that being said, this kind of defense of automatism is a very rare defense to be mounted in criminal court. We don't see it very often. And when it is mounted, um, the threshold for it to be successful is really quite high. Um, So it is unusual in that respect. Because the defense was, and uh, I'm just skipping ahead to the end of the the judgment when the judge says, the judge says, having been satisfied that Mr. Perignon did not act voluntarily when he committed the act of which he is confused, I find him not guilty. And he basically said that the accused was at a minimum operating in a severely impaired state of mind at the material time. Uh, and I found this line interesting. It said, although it is possible that he acted intentionally despite that impairment, the more likely explanation for his conduct is that it was entirely involuntary because it occurred while he was effectively asleep. And that's, I think, what what is, is kind of curious or striking people as curious in this ruling. Yes, and I think the important distinction there is that um, when a person raises this defense, they are required to prove it on a balance of probabilities, which is different than the burden that the Crown bears when they are prosecuting a person, which is to show that the allegation is true beyond any reasonable doubt. And so perhaps that is um, one of the reasons why people might be a little bit confused at first when they read that particular passage. And it's just because of the standard of proof that's required for this particular and again, very unusual defense. And to go back a a little bit and explain more what happened. So this was, again, it happened on on the Sunshine Coast. It was in April, I think it was the Easter weekend of 2017. And uh, according to the the court ruling and what was heard in court, uh, the the wife and the children were watching a movie, went to bed, went upstairs. The wife then said that she heard her husband's footsteps and then she felt a thump in her back and it was at that point she realized that she'd been stabbed she was the one that pulled the knife out but it was the husband I guess he testified as well that he only remembers kind of snapping to seeing this knife on the floor running upstairs or running back upstairs and calling 911 how how does that play into it do you think that that testimony that that was the moment that he kind of realized what was going on and he was the one that called 911 Yeah, I mean, that may have been um, a factor in the reasoning uh, in terms of rendering this decision. But whenever somebody raises this defense, they are required to adduce evidence in their defense. 
So um, it doesn't surprise me that uh, this person testified. Um, also, they would have had to have deduced some medical evidence. So normally that would come in the form of a psychiatrist um, who could testify about uh, their state of consciousness at the time that this event occurred. My understanding in this case is that this person took some drugs, um, some kind of uh, cocktail mix uh, of different, I believe it was prescription drugs, that put him into this state of um, automatism. Um, again, very rare, something that doesn't normally occur and hopefully something that won't occur again. Uh, yeah, hopefully. And you're right. So the, the ruling goes into the bit of the background as well, that this was somebody that moved to BC from Montreal, but when it, he was living in Montreal, uh, res, uh, sustained injuries in a couple of car crashes. Uh, he was hit once in a crosswalk and he was uh, prescribed opioids. He was prescribed some pretty pretty strong painkillers to deal with the injuries and the chronic pain that came from that. Uh, does it make a difference in, in the defense when, when somebody chooses to use this as a defense that they were effectively asleep at the time? Does it make a difference that they're talking about prescription drugs that they can trace back and it's not and it's something that, that a doctor has prescribed them that they're taking? Not really. Um, there's different kinds of automatism. There's both non-mental disorder automatism and mental disorder automatism. Here we're talking about non-mental disorder where a person has perhaps ingested something or suffered an injury that results in the automatistic state. Um, so it's something that's brought on by external factors. Um, and it's something that's not likely to occur again. So I have seen cases like this where people have made these arguments using, say, illicit drugs, prescription drugs, combinations of drugs and alcohol, for example, or even hit their head, um, you know, had a very severe uh, injury, which would result in this uh, a non-permanent state um, of consciousness being altered. Do you think this is a case? Because I know whenever we talk about the fact that, that intoxication is used as a defense and that it can be used as, an, as a defense, that often gets questioned as in, well, why is that so? Because it, it seems like kind of an easy, almost like an excuse that you're saying, oh, I didn't, I'm not responsible for my actions because I was so intoxicated. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, is this the type of case, though, that, that shows why that is a possible defense? So there's a critical distinction here because the defense isn't a defense of voluntary intoxication. The defense is automatism, which is a different thing altogether. Although they seem as though uh, they may be, you know, different shades or degrees of one another, um, at law, uh, they are distinct concepts. So automatism is a state of essentially unconsciousness where a person loses complete control over all of their actions. So perhaps they acted in a way that was voluntary, but their conscious mind had absolutely no control over it. So again, it's a distinction from uh, just simply being intoxicated. Hmm, I, that is, I, I didn't realize that there were, there were that the, because it is still somebody that's under the influence of, of drugs. And, and I know there was some talk of whether or not there was alcohol involved, but that's an, an interesting distinction. Is it different as well than when mounting a defense like this in that we're talking about still a serious, a serious offense that somebody was stabbed in the back, but is it different in that we're talking about an aggravated assault rather than say a murder or manslaughter? 
the defense would still be the same. And so would the standard of proof that will be required on the part of the defendant who wished to mount it. Um, I have seen this defense, you know, being used uh, on a number of occasions, um, but more often than not, in my experience and from my reading of the case law, um, it's usually not all that likely to succeed. So you need some pretty strong evidence, not only by way of, uh, of testimony in the court, but also by way of medical evidence to support it. Um, I think that's the important thing to highlight here is that this is a very unusual case in that not only is the defense itself unusual, but also um, its success rate is relatively low, generally speaking. And so would that be in this case, there was a doctor that testified about the different types of drugs that the the accused was using and the fact that that they weren't working, that he was having insomnia, that he was looking for something else. He had withdrawal symptoms from some. Uh, I mean, it was quite um, uh, detailed in going through the long list of opioids and prescription drugs that he was trying. Uh, does, does that help in that? Again, it shows a pattern of, of doctors prescribing these drugs and shows what drugs could have been in his system and and why they might have caused that? Absolutely. I'm sure that the court put a great deal of weight into that medical testimony. Um, It is, in my view, useful that they would have had a doctor who actually treated this person. And I expect they probably also would have had evidence from um, a psychiatric specialist who could talk about how those types of medications or combinations of medications might affect or alter a person's state of consciousness. And like you said, it's a, it's a rare defense. And you mentioned that in the times you've seen it. Have you seen it very many times then or, or even heard of this defense being used here or, or even elsewhere? It is available to be used in other countries as well. I mean, we, I, we see it uh, being mounted in, in the U.S. as well as in Australia, England, for example. So it is something that um, is available, so to speak, uh, in terms of a defense um, for uh, criminal offenses, really uh, throughout um, the uh, the um, Commonwealth, um, at least. Uh, but again, it's not something that comes up very often. It is very rare, uh, especially you know, when we're talking about non-mental disorder automatism, where there has to be this triggering external factor to put somebody into that disassociative state, which is not something that happens very often. And and one other point on this too that I that I noticed, and this was the Crown saying that they the Crown also conceded that there didn't appear to be a motive. There was no trigger. It wasn't as though they could show a pattern or they could show that there had been fighting or there there was any motive there. Would that have played into it as well? That that it wasn't somebody that that is claiming that they were asleep to get away with something. Yeah, and I think that's the big fear. And oftentimes, you know, we see cases where people try to mount this defense and fail because there's evidence to suggest that they had premeditated the um, crime that they have committed and that they have also um, turned their mind to this defense prior to doing so, Uh, whether that's in uh, the way of, say, Google engine searches, um, you know, education in law school where they're learning about the defense and then decide that perhaps they could test it out for themselves very unwisely, um, or animosity in a relationship. Those are all things that the court would consider and would not bode very well in terms of mounting a successful defense. All right. Uh, It uh, is an interesting judgment, that's for sure. Sarah Lehman, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Where's everybody going? To Gobbler's Knob. 
It's Groundhog Day. It's still just once a year, isn't it? All right, classic movie. It's, uh, I'm sure, something people will be watching today as February 2nd is Groundhog Day. But we wanted to take a little time to learn a bit more about groundhogs. What about the ones that call BC home? Well, Aaron Ryan joins us now, a specialist, wild animal welfare for the BC SBCA. Aaron, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, good to look a little closer at uh, these uh, animals, these uh, mammals and the species that we have here in BC, because we do often look at the, I suppose, more famous groundhogs uh, only for one day of the year. But tell us a bit, if you can, about the groundhogs, uh, about the species we have here in BC. Well, I think what's important to remember is all groundhogs are marmots, but not all marmots are groundhogs. So groundhogs are the smallest species of four species of marmot in BC. And are they, is it uh, correct in saying that they are woodchucks? Yes. So they're known as woodchucks or groundhogs. Um, These are definitely small little guys. So they have a brownish coat, kind of a rust or straw colored belly and black feet, which is often quite distinctive. All right. I feel like in BC, the yellow bellied marmot gets all of the attention. I think so. And that tends to be because those guys tend to live, you know, really in the the urban areas and they don't mind setting up burrows kind of in and around humans. So we're more likely to see them around. All right. So the the ones that we're talking about today and the the folklore, I suppose we could call it, or when we all look to see if the groundhog sees its shadow when it comes out of the ground. Um, what are you when you when you hear that and see so much attention paid to that? What is the real reason that a groundhog might come out of its burrow today? Well, I think unfortunately the tradition doesn't hold. They're not quite the climate scientists we think they are. Um, But in Canada, of course, snow and ice is really still accumulating right now. So we're not likely to see a lot of wild groundhogs poking their head out of their holes. If they are, though, it's likely that they're, you know, they're probably getting ready to come out of hibernation and their mating season starts right away. So it's possible they're, you know, they're checking out the weather. They're seeing if there's any mates nearby. Hmm. And does the mating season start for them no matter if uh, winter is sticking around for another six weeks or if the warm weather is going to come earlier? No, their hibernation is pretty much based on the timing of, you know, when the cold and the snow subside. But as soon as that's done and they're ready to come out, their mating season will begin right away. And you mentioned too, so the the reason we might see or talk about the yellow-bellied marmots more is because they're more in areas with humans. So the uh, the groundhogs, the woodchucks, the, the ones that we, we tend to talk about or that we're, we're talking about when we're talking about Groundhog Day, where do we find them in BC? Mostly you'll see them kind of in the Columbia region, the southern Rocky Mountains. And these guys really prefer sort of that open lowland area, so near the edges of forests. And they can be found throughout most of the interior, but they're not in those those dry grasslands that we see some of the other marmot species. And what are they like as far as, are they mean? Are they uh, vicious when they're going after prey? Or how would you kind of describe their their personalities, if we could call it that? No, I mean, groundhogs are, um, they're large, stocky rodents, which, you know, they don't weigh much larger than an average house cat. But they eat mainly grasses, leaves, and insects um, as sort of prey animals. They dig burrows for shelter, but you can often spot them 
sunbathing, foraging, grooming, and they even like dust bathing. And what do you mean by that? Just just rolling so, around in in, <laughs> in that kind yeah. of a bathing type thing. Exactly. So what they'll do is in some some dried dirt or um, sand, even they'll kind of roll around and rub it on their fur, and it actually helps as part of their regular grooming process. Are there any issues with populations either on the too many side or the the endangered side? Do we have to worry at all about the marmot population in BC? So I think a lot of people might already know the Vancouver Island marmot is in trouble. They're found only in a few small pockets of Vancouver Island, and they're critically endangered. So there was fewer than 30 of them in the wild in 2004. But thanks to significant conservation recovery efforts, their population has really rebounded. So they're now up over, I think there was 200 in 2019. Hmm. And do you know what caused that? Why that one particular type of marmot was seeing such critical numbers? There's a few suggestions, climate change related, but um, part of it is that their habit, like they only live in just these few small mountainous pockets. So as those change and disappear, they kind of run out of options. And what about human interaction? They can they can look cute, especially the ones we're talking about as far as the, the, the groundhogs, the smaller ones that look cute and furry. What about humor, human interaction or have there been cases of people feeding them or, or doing things that are actually quite detrimental to them? Mm-hmm. So we know across all species that feeding wildlife does more harm than good. Um, it generally leads to habituation and food conditioning and can often lead to poor health for the animals. And it can also attract even more animals to the area. And I was looking on the the SBCA website as well, doing a a little marmot research. And I didn't realize this, but I guess it makes a lot of sense that they can hitchhike, they can get into vehicles, and they can travel great distances when maybe they didn't mean to. Mm -hmm. So they can sometimes get into trouble when they might climb up into the undercarriage of vehicles or trailers if they're parked in sort of those hiking, camping, or recreational areas. Um, And some, especially the yellow-bellied marmots, because, again, they're more comfortable with people, have been found hitching right across the ocean, so staying hidden on a vehicle on the ferry. Huh. And is that a problem if if that happens and they're kind of in a whole different area or a whole different part of the province? I mean, the best solution is definitely to get them back where they came from. So we don't want to be releasing animals where they don't belong. We also recommend if you live in an area or if you're visiting an area where there are marmots, try and block off the underside of your vehicle using a large tarp or bungees. And before leaving, check your car thoroughly for hitchhikers. You can um, give the underside of your vehicle a quick check and inside the hood. We also recommend just loudly and firmly thumping on the sides and the hood of your vehicle as you go through, and that should discourage any hitchhikers. And if you do see them, do you, do you kind of just scare them off? Exactly. So usually that loud thump is enough to get them out and get them running away. But um, yeah, if you see any same thing, give a few firm thumps should be enough. 
And do you think Groundhog Day, we, we tend to poke a little fun at it. Uh, people come out and have ceremonies. We saw the one in Quebec, unfortunately, where the marmot, uh, the uh, groundhog uh, passed away overnight, so was not able to make mm-hmm. it to, to the ceremony. Do these help educate people more about uh, groundhogs or, or does it does it kind of oversimplify their, their purpose or, or how they kind of coexist? I think a lot of the the knowledge about groundhogs is kind of lost in the fanfare. And mostly what we see with these traditions is unfortunately a lot of disturbing captive animals and causing them unnecessary stress in front of all these crowds. All right. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to join us and talk more about this and and bring us more information about the marmots of BC. Erin, we will leave it there for today, but thank you so much. Thank you for having me.